0: Stories, Fables,
1: Ghostly Tales. Welcome, listeners, to your double episode of Tales from Tibet, otherwise known as Tibetan Wonders. Your first tale shares a story of a cruel Khan, softened by the love of a parent and the innocence of a barber. Even the Khan's icy heart can melt, and this tale shares such a way. Whilst your second story is all about princely courage, inner strength, vigor, selflessness, and pure will to do the right thing. A prince that gives back to his people in the prince with a golden mouth. This episode is narrated in an audiobook format, so minus the audio background, and let me know what you think. If you enjoy what I do, leave me an iTunes review, because it helps me find lovelies like you lot. And a shout out to my top five cities that are listening to me right now. I got Stockholm, North Syracuse, Soda Springs, that place sounds delicious, and Lincoln, the place, not the man. Lastly, should you feel like you can support the show, visit my Patreon at patreon.com forward SFGT, where you can support me for as much as a cup of tea a month. All right, mate, so let's jump on in. The Secret of the Khan's Barber Once upon a time, long, long ago, there lived in the east a mighty Khan. He had broad, fertile lands to rule over and many thousands of faithful subjects, but though he governed wisely and well, the country was filled with discontent and for a very good reason. Never did the Khan permit himself to be seen by his people, and he even obliged his courtiers and advisers to address him from behind tapestries and never allowed any of them to look upon his face. And this was not the worst by any means. Every once and so often a youth was chosen from among the people and was taken to the palace, where he was dressed in gorgeous attire and then led. Into the presence of the Khan. There, he was bidden to act as barber and cut the monarch's hair, and after he had done so, he invariably disappeared and was never seen or heard of again. Of course, it was easy to guess that he had been put to death. Needless to say, the fathers and mothers of young men lived in constant dread and hated the Khan with their whole hearts. Yet, they had no power to withstand his orders. Now, it happened one day that the Khan's messenger stopped at the house of a widow who had only one child, a fine, handsome lad whom she loved better than life itself. It had fallen to the lot of this youth, Daibank by name, to be the Khan's barber on the following day. But when the widow heard the news, Instead of weeping and complaining as others have done, she went at once to her kitchen, for she had devised a plan whereby her son might yet be sane. With great care she baked some little cakes of rice flour and milk, very light and fine and tempting to look upon, and into them she needed the great love that filled her heart for her son. Then calling him to her, she said, Daibae! On the morrow you must go to the palace to cut the Khan's hair, and after that, what fate may befall you we may not know, but we can very well guess. Then do exactly as I bid you, and my heart tells me you will escape the hard lot that has come to so many others. Take with you these cakes, which I have baked for you with loving care, and while you are performing your duty to the Khan, manage to eat one of them so that he will see you do it. He will then ask to taste one himself, and when he has eaten of it, he will wish to know what it is made of. Tell him that your mother made these cakes of rice flour and milk, and that she kneaded into them her love and prayers for you. After that, I think he will not find it in his heart to take your life. Daipang accepted the cakes gratefully and kissed his mother. And when the time came for him to go to the palace, he set forth with a light heart and high courage. Having arrived there, he was taken at once by servants and clad in rich clothing, then led into the presence of the Khan. With comb and scissors of pure gold, he dressed and cut the monarch's hair, and as he looked at him, he learned the Khan's secret, and why it was that he allowed no one to look upon him and live. And tai Bung's mind was filled with wonder. Nevertheless, he did not forget his mother's commands and managed to eat one of her cakes while he was combing the royal hair. What are you eating? asked the Khan, and Daibunk spread out his mother's cakes before him. They looked extremely good, and the monarch at once demanded one to eat. They tasted even better than they looked. And all the rest of the time, Daibang was working over him, the great Khan sat munching the cakes with evident enjoyment. Good youth, he said at length. Tell me, what are these made of? For I must have my royal cook learn the art and bake me such goodly cakes daily. Never have I tasted anything better. Sire, Replied Daibang. These are very simple cakes. They are made of rice flour and milk. My mother baked them and kneaded into them her love and prayers for me, her only child. After that, Khan remained silent for a long time. When at last Daibang had finished his work and begged leave to retire, the Khan turned and, looking steadfastly at him, said, Young man, the love. That your mother needed into those cakes. Has entered my very soul. And I cannot bring myself to give the order for your execution. As I have done these many times with lads like you. You have learned my secret. And for that reason. You should die. For I trust no man on earth. Nor any woman either. To keep a secret entirely locked up. In his own mind. Daibang bowed low, but said nothing. After a moment, the khan continued. In truth, lad, my love for you grows, and I am minded even to trust your word and let you live. Will you promise, by your mother's love and by all else in the world, that you consider holy, not to breathe, to any man or any
2: woman, the secret concerning me that you have learned this day?
1: And will you promise also to tell no one in what manner your life was spared? Solemnly and in all true faith, Daibung knelt down and promised to keep steadfastly these two things as long as he lived. With that, he was dismissed, and servants were ordered to load him with presents and conduct him home. Great was the wonder of the people in the village when they learned that Daibung had returned unharmed from the palace, after having acted as the Khan's barber. They came in crowds to the widow's cottage, and demanded eagerly how it was that he had escaped, and what the Khan's great secret was, anyway, that he should refuse at any time to be seen by his people, or to let those live who had once set eyes upon him. But to all their questions and wonderings, Daibang said never a word. That night, his mother, too, besought him to tell her just how he had fared and about the Khan's secret. But he only said to her, Mother mine, ask me no more. Your cakes work the loving magic you foretold, and I have escaped death. But I have given my word of honour that I will tell no human being, not even my dear and faithful mother, the secret I learned while I was cutting the Khan's hair. So the days and weeks and months passed by, and still every once in so often a fine young man would be chosen from among the people, and taken to the palace to trim the Khan's hair, after which he would be put to death. Not one escaped as Daibang had done, and still the people came to the widow's cottage and entreated Daibang to tell them the monarch's secret. Now, he was a tender-hearted and a willing youth, and he yearned most earnestly to break his promise, more especially when mothers and fathers besought him with tears and prayers to tell them how he had been spared, so that their sons might live also. At length, so great was the strain of the secret on his mind and heart, that Daibang grew very ill, Doctors came to him from all part of the country, and his mother nursed him with tender care day and night, yet steadily he grew worse and worse. The lad will die. The doctors said to his mother, He will surely die unless he breathes forth the secret that is resting so heavily upon his mind. But Daibang remained faithful. I, I, I have promised, by my mother's love, and by all else that I call holy, to tell my secret to no living being, and I will die rather than break my word. So the doctors all departed, saying there was nothing further they could do. That night the widow devised a plan. Sitting beside her son as he lay restless and tossing on his bed, she said, Daibang, my child, hearken to me that you may live and not die. I have a plan whereby you may keep your promise to the Khan and yet rid your soul of its heavy secret. Take courage, hasten and get strong. Then go forth alone into a far desert place. There, find a hole in the ground or a crevice in a rock. And when you have put your lips down close, speak out the whole matter that is weighing upon your heart. So shall you keep your promise and yet find relief for your soul and live. This advice seemed good to Daibang, and so encouraged was he by the hope of ridding himself of his secret that he straightway began to mend. In a short time he had recovered strength enough to start forth and carry out the suggestion of his mother. He travelled many miles from home and came at length to a desert place full of rocks and sand, far from every sign of human dwelling. And in the middle of this wasteland, he found a deep, dark hole kneeling upon the ground, Daibang put his lips close to this hole and whispered all his secret. Three times he told it, and then he arose, feeling light-hearted again and well in body and mind. Now it happened that in this hole lived a marmot, very old and clever, and he heard and understood Daibang's words, and knew it was the great calm secret he was telling, being an in- being an idle, gossipy fellow, he repeated it all to his friend Echo. And as Echo always repeated everything he heard, whether secret or otherwise, he soon told the wind, and the wind bore the Khan's secret far and wide over the land, and back at last into the palace garden where the Khan himself was sitting. When the monarch heard the wind whispering about his secret, he was filled with rage. Truly! The whole world must be talking about my secret, if even the
2: wind bandies about it. I did wrong to spare the life of that fellow Daibung,
1: and tomorrow, before sunrise, he shall die. So it came about that Daibung was arrested that very day and dragged to the palace by rough soldiers. He was thrust at once into the private council room and there found himself alone with the angry Khan. Did I not say that no man on earth could keep a secret faithfully? He cried sternly to the lad. And you, though I loved and I believed in you, have betrayed your trust. For the very wind that plays in my garden is whispering of that which none but you could tell. Speak now, if you have aught to say in self-defense, for tomorrow,
2: at daybreak.
1: You shall die. Daipang had been frightened and confused by the rough handling of the soldiers, but now, hearing of what he was accused of and knowing that he had done no wrong, he took courage and told the Khan honestly and without restraint all that he had done. Indeed, sire," said he at the end. No human being knows your secret even now and it was only to save my life and because of the prayers of my mother that I spoke it into a hole in a desert place. The Khan was touched by this story. His anger vanished, and he felt again the love in his heart for this faithful lad, which he had felt first when he'd eaten of his mother's cakes. They talked a long time together, and the end of it all was that Daibang was made the Khan's chief counsellor, And he and his mother lived thereafter, in high state and luxury, at the royal palace. You may be sure Daibang and his clever mother were not long in devising a way of hiding the Khan's secret so that he could go abroad among his people like other kings. And never again was a young man chosen to cut the Khan's hair and afterwards be put to death. That service Daibang kept for himself and remained the Lord High Royal Barber to the end of his days. But. What was the Khan's secret? demanded the prince when the Sidekur had finished his tale. Oh, that? said the Sidekur. Was very simple. Haven't
2: you guessed it yet? The Khan had ears that were large and pointed like the ears of an ass and he was frightfully ashamed of them. But the widow made him a tall velvet cap with With lappets that came down over them. And after after that he felt perfectly comfortable about himself. Of course such caps became the style in the kingdom. And I believe they are worn in the East, in court circles, this very day. But... I have tarried long enough. My heart yearns again for my mango tree in the cool grove beside the garden of ghost children. Farewell, O Prince, since you have again broken silence on the homeward way, you have no longer any
0: power to hold me.
1: The shame and remorse of the prince at having failed again were pitiful to see, but knowing that tears and self-accusation were of no avail, he turned around and set off at a smart pace after the disappearing form of the city Goodbye, silly prince. I have a story in mind, said the Sidekur, as he journeyed once more in the magic sack on the back of the prince toward the cave of the master, Nagaguna. A very
2: ancient story of a king's son as faithful and as wise as yourself, my friend. Come
1: now, would you like me to tell it? The prince nodded his head, resolving within himself that on no account whatever would he open his lips this time to comment on the story. So the coeur began at once. The Prince with the Golden Mouth. Many, many years ago, there dwelt in a far country, a Khan who was great and good and dearly loved by his people. Yet, No one in all his kingdom loved or admired him so much as did his faithful wife and young son. Truly, there never was a happier, more affectionate family. The three shared their joys and sorrows, their cares, their pleasures, and their secrets, and indeed one was scarcely ever seen without the other two. Now, the Khan and his family, and the whole kingdom, had in common one great sorrow, The country was watered by a clear, broad stream, and unless this flowed full and strong all the year, the land dried up, there was a great famine, and the people died of hunger and thirst. At the source of this river lived two serpent gods, hideous monsters, and as evil as they were ugly, and every year these frightful creatures demanded a young man or maiden whom they might devour. Unless this desire was speedily fulfilled, they stopped the water at the head of the stream, it dried up, and the people began to suffer and then die. Many and many a time had the Khan and his counsellors talked of the matter the whole night through, scheming, planning, wondering how they might save the young people of the land from this dreadful fate, but all to no avail if the serpents did not get their yearly gift of precious human blood, the death of hundreds of men, women and children was the result. And so it seemed better for one young man or maid to die each year than that so many should perish. The time had now come for this terrible sacrifice, and throughout the length and breadth of the land there was sorrow and anxiety. Fathers and mothers could scarce sleep but thinking that it might be the turn of their son or daughter to go to the head of the river and be cast into the cave of the monster serpents. Nowhere was there more unhappiness than in the family of the Khan, for he grieved for each lad or lass as if each were his own child. Seeing the care and sorrow in his father's face, the Khan's son, whose name, by the way, was Shalu, thought long and earnestly. Surely, 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 he kept repeating to himself, there must be some way in which I can help my father and free my country from this great curse. But no matter how hard he thought, no way presented itself to his mind. The fateful time drew even nearer and finally the very next day was the dreaded one on which the serpent god would send a messenger, demanding by name some girl or boy in the kingdom. That night, Shalu could not sleep for thinking of the tragedy of the morrow. Suppose I were the one, he thought. Of course, they would not really dare to ask for the Khan's son. But just suppose. And then he pictured to himself the sorrow of his father and mother and his own horror at such a death. And we are no different, really, from the others, he said to himself. The fathers and mothers among our subjects must suffer as keenly as their king and queen would. And so for the boys and girls, they are really just like me. All at once, Chalu sat up in the bed and stared into the darkness. A great idea had entered his mind. I will go to these terrible serpent monsters myself. I will offer myself to them. I, May Khan's son if they will give up their frightful practice thereafter. There was little sleep for Shalu after he had made up his mind to this deed. All night long he lay wide awake, planning how he would plead and argue with the serpent for the lives of his people, and getting up his courage to meet his fate and die bravely, as befitted a prince. Very early in the morning, before the sun was up, he arose, dressed himself and slipped quietly from the palace. He had not gone far before he was startled by hearing a step behind him, and turning around he saw Saran, a faithful friend, following him. Now, Saran was a boy of his own age, who had been brought up at the palace with him, as his servant and companion, and he and the prince loved each other as brothers. Oh, my master and friend, forgive me for having followed you. I have seen your trouble and anxiety these many days, and when you started forth alone this morning, some ill might befall you. At first the prince was much annoyed that he should have been discovered, but as he looked at Saran, he suddenly felt relieved to have a friend near, and he opened his heart and told all his plan of self-sacrifice. He feared Saran would entreat him to give it up and go home, but his friend listened in silence to the end, and then said, Chalu, your heart is noble as a prince should be. I cannot urge you to give up a deed so truly glorious. Only, I beg you, and I will not be denied. Let me go with you and sacrifice myself also, for life without you would be much worse than death. And mayhap if two of us give our lives, the serpents will be the more willing to leave our people in peace hereafter. The prince tried to dissuade his friend, but... Seeing it was of no use, he soon stopped, and the two lads continued on their way together toward the head of the stream. As they approached the cave where the serpents dwelt, they went slowly and softly, for they were minded, if possible, to get a good look at the monsters before they allowed themselves to be seen. Creeping up amongst the bushes by the side of the river, they soon came to an open through which they could peer, and there, seated on the bank, they saw the two horrible creatures. One was a long, thick, dragon-like being, covered with scales of tarnished gold. The other was smaller, and apparently younger, and the scales on its back were as green as emeralds. They had neither seen nor heard the two lads, and in a moment the Golden One began to speak.
0: It is strange, brother, that these people are so ignorant, and so faithful. They cannot very well help themselves, can they? They know that if they fail in the sacrifice, we will dry up their stream, and they will all perish. True. But after all, it would be so easy to kill us if they only knew how. But. Have they not sent armed soldiers against us in times past? And have we not routed them all and slain them? Of course swords could not hurt us, but if they only knew enough to come out against us with thick oak stars, one well-aimed blow on the head from such a weapon would finish us. But luckily they don't know that. And are far too stupid ever to get it. So we are perfectly safe. And then
1: <laughs> chuckled the big golden monster, writhing the folds of his long body comfortably about him. To think what a man would gain by
0: killing us. My head. Cooked and eaten would not only make a delicious meal, but it would give the eater power to pour forth gold from his mouth whenever he wanted to. And if anyone ate my head,
1: said the green one, also chuckling,
0: emeralds would come from his mouth whenever he showed desire. Luckily, the stupid
1: mortals will never know. Chalu and his friend had heard enough. Trembling with excitement, they crept away from their hiding place out of sound and sight of the serpents, and then fell to hugging each other for very joy of the discovery. They lost no time in making for themselves huge oak stars, and armed with these, they walked back to where the serpents still sat lazily, talking together on the bank of the stream. With a shout, they leapt from the bushes upon the unsuspecting monsters and attacked them. The fight was short and sharp. The great creatures turned upon the two boys viciously and lunged at them with their hard, metallic heads, but the lads dodged skillfully and brought down blow after blow upon their enemies until at last they lay motionless and quite dead. Now, said Prince Chalu, leaning on his staff and breathing hard, we must build a fire and cook ourselves a meal, and if the serpent, serpent god spoke the truth, we shall then be rich for the rest of our lives. With their knives they cut off the heads of their dreaded enemies, and, having built a fire of twigs, they cooked them well and then ate them. Chalu ate the golden head and declared it delicious, whilst Saran said that he had never tasted anything quite so good as the Emerald Green Head. <sighs> Mm, let us see,' said the prince when they had finished. "'How well the charm works! I wish that my mouth would pour forth gold!' And scarcely, as he had finished speaking before, a rain of bright gold coins fell from his lips, and the boys gathered them up in big handfuls and stowed them away in their pockets. "'Now let me try,' said Saran. Immediately, emeralds patted to the ground in great profusion. "'What fun!' said Saran, gathering them up. Now let us hasten back to the palace and show your royal father all that we have accomplished. No, don't let us go home yet, said the prince. One adventure is but a stepping stone to another, and I am minded to travel a bit and see what fortune we may meet by the way. With this marvellous gift of gold and emeralds, we should surely come by some strange and interesting experiences. To this plan, Saran readily agreed. The two set forth with merry hearts and, finding an unfamiliar road, followed it. They knew not whither. All day long they travelled, meeting many wayfarers, but finding nothing in the shape of an adventure. In the late afternoon they reached a palm grove whence came shouts and cries and signs of great commotion. Hurrying towards the scene of the disturbance, they beheld half a dozen lusty boys fighting most brutally. Here, young Young fellows. fellows! cried the prince. Stop that at once and tell us what you are fighting about. But the boys paid no heed to him at all. Stop right there, cried Chalu again, shouting to make himself heard above the din. Stop and I will show you a marvel the like of which you have never seen. Hearing this, the boys ceased fighting on the instant and all turned and stared at Chalu and Saran. Marvel, did you say? exclaimed the leader scornfully. You can't show us a marvel greater than the one we've got right here. Have you something wonderful too? Asked the prince. Well then, let us make a bargain. If my marvel is greater than yours, you shall give me yours. And if yours is greater than mine, I will give you each as much gold as two hands can carry. (laughs) Hooray! Cried the boy, delighted. Let us do it. They all gathered around in a circle while their leader picked up from the ground a torn and battered cap. This is what we were fighting about. For each of us wants it for himself. This is a magic cap, and whoever puts it on remains invisible until he takes it off again. Show us a marvel equal to that, if you can. Softly uttering a wish for gold, the prince opened his mouth and immediately, a great rain of coins tumbled to the ground. The boys fell upon them greedily, shouting, snatching, and fighting. Come, these boys are not worthy of owning such a treasure as the cap, and besides, my marvel is greater than theirs, so I am entitled to it. He caught up the ragged cap, put it on his head, and grasped Saren's hand. Straight away they both became invisible, and so passed through the midst of the fighting boys unnoticed and continued on their way. Oh, this is a price well worth having, said the prince. After they had walked a while and, taking the camp off, he hid it carefully in his bosom. Now I wonder what our next adventure will be. They had not gone far before they came to a crossroad. Where there was a great cloud of dust and, hearing shouts and angry words, they hastened to see what it all meant. In the midst of the dust were half a dozen ugly dwarves fighting furiously, screaming and cursing each other. You try your hand at this, said Chalu to his friend. This shall be your adventure. So Saran stamped up on the ground and called out, Stop! "Stop!" in a loud voice, but the dwarves paid no attention to him at all. Stop, I say. say. He repeated louder than before. I "I have a a great great marvel to to show you. you. At the word marvel, the fighters ceased at once and stood staring at the two friends. Marvel, did you say? exclaimed the leader. I don't care how wonderful it is, it can't be as great as ours. What is yours? said Saran. If it is as interesting as mine, you shall each have as many emeralds as your two hands can carry. At that all the dwarves began to laugh scornfully. (laughs) Show him, show him. They cried to their leader. And then we will rob him of all his emeralds if, in truth, he has any. The leader turned and picked up a pair of old, shabby-looking boots. These are magic, and if anybody puts even one of them on and makes a wish to be in any place under the sun, he will find himself there in the twinkling of an eye. That is indeed wonderful, and here is your pay, but in sooth, you deserve neither boots nor emeralds. Then, to the great astonishment of the little men, Saran, uttering a wish for Emerald, opened his mouth and poured them forth, a great stream of glorious green gems. With a shout, the dwarves snatched them up, pushing and tearing them from each other. Quick, said Saran to the prince, put on your cap cap and take my hand, so so that they will not see us. We we can can make make better use of the magic magic boots than these wicked wicked dwarves can. can. So they each hastily slipped on a boot, and, being invisible because of the magic cap, passed out from among the dwarves before they had stopped fighting over the jewels, And now, said Saren, while we have on the boots, let us test their power by wishing to be somewhere. Very well. I wish that we may be taken at once to a country that needs a king. Immediately, the two friends felt themselves picked up and whizzed through the air with such speed that they could see nothing and feel nothing but the wind rushing by their ears. Then they were put down gently upon the ground and found themselves in a strange country. Soon they saw a great procession of men, women and children advancing toward them, and at their head walked the old man, with snowy beard and hair and clad in long white garments. The people came straight up to the prince and Saran, and there halted, while the old man addressed them in eager, trembling tones. "'You are the strangers?' And we are seeking strangers, I pray you. Can you show us some magic sign, whereby we may know that you are not as the other mortals are? Indeed, said Prince Shalhoub. We are no different from other men, but by great good fortune, we have this day become possessed of several wonders. Show, show, us. show us. Show us. This continued Shalhoub, drawing the battered cap from his pocket has the power of making its wearer invisible, he put it on. And the people cried out in wonder and anxiety. Where are they? Where are they? They're gone! Find them! They are truly the ones! No, we are still here, said the prince, removing the cap. But why does it matter so much to you? And why are you so anxious to see our marvels? Show us more. Show us more and the old man in white tried vainly to be quiet, but he was too excited. These boots, Shaloo went on, pointing to the magic ones, are also very powerful, for they will bear us wherever so we wish to be in the twinkling of an eye. It was by their means that we came here. Don't try them. We We believe believe you, cried the old man, as if fearful of losing them, and the crowd surged eagerly forward again. And finally said Chalu, smiling at them and thoroughly enjoying their wonder. My friend, and I have a little trick which may interest you. Opening their mouths, the two began to pour forth gold and emerald and toss them in great handfuls among the crowd. If they were excited before, the people now went mad with surprise and joy, and while they were grasping at the precious things, the old white-haired man approached Chalu and said, Oh, marvellous stranger, know that I am a magician and by my art. I learned that this land which has been without a king for many a long day would find a just, wise, and righteous ruler in a wonder-working stranger whom we should meet traveling along the road today. Accept then our kingdom. Come and rule over our people, and we will honor you as our Khan and your companion as Grand Vizier to the end of our days. The crowd had by this time grown silent, listening. And at the end of the speech, they set up a shout that echoed to the very clouds. Seizing Shalu and Saran in their arms, they bore them with laughter and singing to the palace, where Shalu was crowned with all pomp and ceremony, and Saran was made his chief advisor. And so the two friends lived worthily and happily till the end of their days. The tale being finished, the Sidhiker was silent. But what of the poor father and mother? exclaimed the prince impatiently. Surely, Salu was a faithless son if he left his parents to die of grief for him.
2: Dear me, no. He didn't do that. He was no sooner made king than he journeyed back to visit his royal father and mother. And I leave you to imagine their joy and the happiness of the whole land. When it became known that the prince and his faithful friend had not only returned in safety... But, but I had delivered them from, from the curse, curse of the serpent, serpent gods and had won,
1: besides, besides such glory and riches. But, but I fear me, continued the Sidekur, playfully poking the Khan's son in the ribs, that
2: you will never attain glory and riches unless you remember the words of Naraguna and keep silent on your homeward way. Farewell. I am off to my mango tree, and it is good indeed to be free again. See you, sucker.
1: The prince could scarcely keep back his tears of anger and vexation as he watched the Sidokur skipping gaily off to the north. I will fetch you yet, he cried, but the magic creature only turned and smiled at him indulgently. Whatever.
2: I would give it up if I were you, said he. But if you really are determined to get me again, I have a nice story to tell you on the way back. The strange adventure of Shadu's wife.
1: And with that, he ran on and disappeared into the distance. Both these stories were just awesome. I really love the fact that the Khan had such an incredible physical disfigurement that he literally killed people should they witness it. I mean, talk about deadly pride. I immediately thought of the old Disney Pinocchio film when Pinocchio gets trapped on an island with the naughty kids that drinks and smoke and drink and smoke more and more and as they act up more and more, they turn into donkeys bit by bit. Not gonna lie, that was terrifying to me as a child, but highly effective. And the second story with the golden mouth and the green emerald spell. I had this weird image in my head that both the heroes were vomiting gold and gems out of their mouths the entire time. I mean, it seems cool and wondrous, but you can imagine the wrecking and gagging sounds, followed by a series of coin plinkets and thuds from the emeralds. Kind of bizarre and freaky, right? Oh, folks, thank you so much for listening. I want to thank my old knighty Titan, Maya, a Hall of Famer of this podcast. You have contributed so much to this show that you have a permanent place in my thank yous and will never be forgotten. Thank you immensely, you majestic Maya. And my amazing White Tea Warlords, Zuka you've helped me cover the SoundCloud and Audioboom hosting costs. They come around once a year, and every month, people like yourself help me cover those costs. I am immensely grateful and really, really appreciate your kindness and donations here. Thank you for helping me continue what I'm doing, where every dollar you day goes back into production. You are a legend. And my second White Tea Warlord, Paige Kramer, Your donations have actually helped me cover website hosting costs to ensure that my website stays up and running. With your donations, I'm also able to secure sounds and special effects from Soundcrate and so many other awesome sources for music production. Not showcased in this episode, of course, but you'll hear it in the future episodes. Thank you, Paige, so much. You are a superstar. And my brilliant Earl Grey enforcers, I am lucky to have Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli. Michelangelo Yacone divided by zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, and Solstra, with my remaining supporters, Catherine Mason and Sunshine Days. Thank you all for listening, you loveliest of people. Now, write your story, share your tale, make it creepy or something silly about a snail, but remember that little tremor that crawls up your spine, or the tingle that makes you smile from a perfect plot line that's the magic of storytelling. Like tea, it's divine. You took the time to listen to me and you think that it was your treat. But I thank you, my friends, for the listen. And as always, till next we meet.